Hey there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what I have for you today is a bunch of stuff about the unintended consequences of the lockdowns and why many around the world, including the World Health Organization itself, are starting to call for an end to them. All that and more today. get into this. So, we're going to talk about some of the unintended consequences of the lockdowns. Now, I take you to India. And the problem they are facing is a great increase in the child trafficking in India. So, basically, when the lockdowns were enforced across India, a lot of uh, people particularly the poor and more impoverished uh, families in India who were already struggling economically, uh, they were put in a position where it was hard to get by, especially when they couldn't go out and work. And recently, India has uplifted some of their lockdown restrictions, enabling people to go back to work. But given the situation that families are in, Many are many children who are allowed to work in India, given certain rules. Um, they have either decided on their own to go out and work and help support their family, or they've essentially been forced to work by their family to, you know, help the family. So, the way it works in India is children are allowed to work as young as 14 years old, although I'm, I believe that that age bracket, 14, is specifically for family-owned businesses, so if your dad owns a shop, you can work for him at 14, and not too far, not too much older than that, you can go get your own job outside of a family business, and children working that young are not allowed to be working in hazardous facilities or hazardous conditions for that matter now the issue then is child is the traffickers the child traffickers that have deliberately and openly targeted these impoverished families who are struggling more than anybody else and are paying them a couple thousand rupees which is india's currency um they're paying them a couple thousand rupees, which translates to uh, low double digits in dollars. I'll bring up the conversion in a little bit. They're giving them thousands of rupees in exchange for their children. Some children get paid. Most children don't. Now, in other cases, the children are promised work. The You know, the children that go out on their own looking for work. They're promised work. And they are deceived into getting on buses. And when they get on these buses, they are taken to these uh, child, uh, how should I put these, working facilities. uh, Where they're working often without pay. And they have no way of contacting their families. Obviously no way of calling for help. And the children in those facilities are forced to work in strenuous and dangerous posi- uh, positions and conditions. Now, as I mentioned, that directly contradicts Indian child labor laws, which is why uh, there's been lots of police raids uh, in the one state of Jaipur, which is... I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing that right. Jaipur? Jaipur. Uh, and it's an Indian province, so... To those of you in the U.S., it'd be um, like a state. Uh, So, the Jaipur, the state, by itself, has had 20 police raids on these illegal child labor facilities. And 
50 children were rescued in the last two weeks of August alone. And that is according to the Lincoln Journal Star. Now, that's a situation, and that's literally just one province. Um, from what I was able to gather, uh, the reason why isn't just the economic conditions on these families, these working families, but rather the migrant workers. Now, these are people who don't live in India but go to India for work. When the lockdowns hit, the migrant workers went home, and a lot of these migrant workers did a lot of the low-skill, low-paying jobs. So when they left, there was a, and I believe there was like 14 million of them, there was a in great increase in demand for low-skilled labor in India, and con because children are allowed to work and are more easily deceived than, say, an adult, the child traffickers have targeted the children to work in these facilities that were previously reserved for the migrant workers. Again, these are hazardous conditions that were occupied by adults, but now the adults are gone and probably aren't going to be let back into India because of COVID. So now they've targeted the children to do them. Now, I have, now before I get into my thoughts on that, and I does make me think uh, I have brought up the conversion of rupees to dollars one Indian rupee is one and a half cents uh, in USD so it gives you a picture of how much they're paying when you and well how bad the situation must be when you can give somebody 21 bucks so around 3,000 rupees you can give them 21 bucks and they'll give you their child. I guess that just speaks volumes to how bad it must be for these families in India that are impoverished and then put the additional burden of a lockdown on them so they can't even work anymore. So now I'll get into my thoughts on that and reading that uh, it and seeing some of the living conditions that these families were in it kind of made me think about the situation in the U.S. back during the Great Depression. Uh, this was a time in our history when children were also allowed to work from such a young age uh, for similar reasons, to help support their family, especially during the Great Depression. Now, the child labor in America wasn't abolished until 1938, so there was a good decade or near decade long period uh, within the Great Depression itself that children were still allowed to work and it's very likely that they were in similar many many of them were put in similar situations when they were working in hazardous conditions uh, for low pay uh, just to help their family get by it's, it really really makes you think especially when you're able to when you know things from history and then reality of, you know, the modern day comes in and you think, we have this, we have that, we have this technology, we we don't do that anymore, and then all it takes is one crisis and you're back a hundred years, you know, not necessarily in terms of technology, but in terms of, uh, in terms of social conditions that p essentially pushed for the things that happened a hundred years ago. And uh, it's not a necessarily a happy note, but it is interesting to look at, especially through that historical lens, you know. But, um, it also makes me think about the life of people around the world prior to the Industrial Revolution, because, you know, this, you know, before machines, everything had to be done by manual labor. So obviously, that was going to include the kids, because you didn't have the luxury of saying, you know, work for you, little Jimmy. No, your little Jimmy's going to work on the farm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, this is a, th that was a time, you know, before the Industrial Revolution. So base, essentially, 1700 and backwards. This was a time when 
the vast masses of people were impoverished and lived predominantly subsistence lifestyles. You, If you could afford a mule or an ox, you would, and you could probably start churning out some real money and making making something for yourself. But other than that, it was... <laughs> You get you use your kids for free labor on the farm, and the the rich, or rather, the nobility, their kids could afford to not work until they were, you know, adults. So, I guess comparing that to now, it's not too different. Although instead of nobility, we just call them the rich. And, you know, we all we all have our rich kid stereotypes, but. Yeah, the Industrial Revolution changed a lot. And so, seeing this story kind of brought me back to that perspective of pre-Industrial Revolution uh, around the world. Where the, the kids would work and likely be taken advantage of for cheap labor. And, yeah, you know. Depressing times, depressing times. I'm happy to be alive today and not then, so... <laughs> But in lighter news, Sudan has joined the Middle Eastern Peace Deal, which is, I think that's the unofficial name for it, you know, there's probably like individual names for each deal, but the broader theme is the Middle Eastern Peace Deal, brokered by the U.S., uh, where countries in the Middle East are normalizing relations with Israel. Or at least that's what it was prior to Sudan. The UAE and Bahrain were not at war with Israel. Uh, they normalized relations. But this time, Sudan actually was at war with Israel. Now, they have no way of getting to Israel, so it was more of a, uh, a diplomatic and political slight. Uh, a non-violent protest to the existence of Israel. But... Now, they've actually made peace with Israel, and Israel has opened their skies to uh, flights, you know, passenger and commercial flights between Israel and Sudan. Now, Sudan is south of Egypt, so if you look on a map and go on over to Africa, Egypt, Egypt is in like that northeastern corner, and then right below them is Sudan. And... <coughs> Yeah, so, it's technically Africa, but, you know, the broader Middle East, still a good thing. Still a very good thing. Uh, and rumor has it that Saudi Arabia is on deck for joining this peace deal, which is probably once you get Saudi Arabia, I imagine many other countries in the region will follow suit. Probably not Turkey, probably not Iran, but... Arabia hates Iran anyway, so who knows? Who knows where this goes? Uh, probably leading back to that pan-Middle Eastern unofficial alliance, uh, the unofficial anti-Iran coalition forming between the people in the Middle East. Now, that'll be something to look out for for the future, because once America disappears from the picture, and... As unrealistic as that may seem to a lot of the people who've been around for uh, j just the past couple decades and watching our blunders in the Middle East, uh, once America is gone or has continued and finished up its stepping back from the region, it's just going to be the people living there. Now, that means Israel, Arabia, the UAE, a little bit of Egypt, a little bit of Sudan. That means Turkey and Iran. And maybe Iraq, maybe Syria, you know. Uh, uh, depending on how well they're able to stabilize themselves in the years to come. But it's uh, an interesting thing to look out for. Definitely an unmitigated good as far as Israel is concerned. But while we're on the topic of Israel... Um, they are, they have protests, they have protests. Thousands of Israelis are gathering weekly, demanding the resignation of Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. 
Now, the reason being, corruption uh, charges, corruption charges such as fraud, breach of trust, and acceptance of bribes. Uh, that and his handling of coronavirus, in their view, was uh, bad. So they are angry at him, and they want him gone. Combine that with the economic uh, strain from the lockdowns of 25% of Israelis, uh, the Israeli workforce is unemployed. So again, another uh, another problem created by the lockdowns that mass unemployment and you know they pro they're likely imposing restrictions on capacity as well so those people as far as the lockdowns uh as long as the lockdowns are in place these people are going to be almost structurally unemployed so they're angry but kind of caught in this situation likely where they're stuck between managing corona virus and whether or not they're going to go through with the lockdowns. Because if they say... Because what happens when people say undo the lockdowns, uh, they're immediately accused of not taking the coronavirus seriously. But the people who take the coronavirus seriously and advocate for lockdowns um, put people in a position where they can't work. Can't work. And are dependent on the government. So if the government bungles the response. Or even if the government gets it right. Yeah, you, uh, when they lock it down. You're still going to create problems. Economic problems. You're still going to create unrest. By keeping people in their homes. And not allowing them to do the things. That they would usually do to blow off steam. So it's to me it seems like a bit of a pressure cooker. I'll elaborate on that later. Because it's not just Israel that's having these protests. Because uh, there is unrest in Nigeria. Now, what's going on in Nigeria? Now, the protests in Nigeria that were initially um, about police brutality. Uh, they had initially called for the disbanding of a special police unit called the Special Anti-Robbery Squad. Or SARS for short, and I do not miss the irony of that, SARS during a pandemic. Now, the SARS unit was accused of harassment, extortion, torture, and extrajudicial killings. The president of Nigeria, Muhammadu Bukhari, did actually disband the unit, but the protests didn't stop. The protests after the disbanding of the police unit... Uh, morphed into a general opposition towards Nigeria's government itself, and the protests descended into the chaos of rioting and looting after 12 were shot in Lagos, 12 protesters. Now, the, it is reported that the warehouses that food was kept um, for distribution during the pandemic, and, well, more accurately, during the lockdowns, these warehouses are being targeted for the looting and rioting. So expect people to go hungry in Nigeria. Now, that being said, and that that's kind of like an update. Not really update, but a more up-to-date. There we go. An up-to-date version of the situation in Nigeria. Now, all of that being said, there's a general theme that I have noticed in gathering my info to make today's episode and that seems to be that the lockdowns are having these horrific unintended consequences uh around the world it's you can see that there's unrest in the streets in america there's unrest in germany there's unrest in britain uh we don't there's unrest in russia Although and China, although the Chinese and the Russians are very good at hiding that, uh, make no mistake, the people in Wuhan are not happy. There's there's child trafficking. There's been a boom in the industry in India of child trafficking. Um, there's people protesting in Israel. There's riots now in 
Nigeria, and these riots are probably due to the pent-up frustrations, you know, because if they're generally protesting the government itself, uh, combine that with them being locked in their homes by the government that they don't like for, what, a couple months, and now you have people with lots of lots of excess energy going out and rioting and looting. Ah. The lockdowns, I believe, need to end. No. I am fully aware that that's going to mean more cases. Fully aware that that's going to mean more deaths specifically to COVID. But, look at look around and see what the alternative is. Um, it's, uh, I mean, come on now. If people are out rioting and protesting weekly, uh, COVID's gonna spread anyway. If every, if every other day people are rioting over something, it's, uh, or people are just protesting, not even rioting, but gathering in these massive crowds, is a mask really gonna stop the spread when they're that close to one another in these massive groups of people in cities I do not think so uh, I would bet against you if you said so but I think the lockdowns need to end these side effects uh, have continuously got worse They're like I mean, j just look at the child trafficking in India okay who we, we don't even know what the side effects were in China because China is very good at uh, keeping things that happen in this house within this house. So, yeah. the lockdowns are have led to increases in suicide rates, domestic violence and abuse rates, depression rates. People... Or people in this time who were already struggling to find purpose and meaning are now locked in their homes with no job. You know, the people who need their job the most, I should add to that as well. Um, you look at people who are rich, they, people who, uh, them and people who can work online are they have been mostly insulated although I won't necessarily say that they've been completely insulated but anybody who looks can see that they have been hit significantly less hard than say the working class folks around the world especially people who have to go into crowded places to do their job I don't think I don't think the lockdowns have worked either, because we've been locked down since, what was it, what was it, March, and 800,000 deaths around the world, uh, millions, what was it, tens of millions of COVID cases, and now we're at this point where people are beginning to open up, and the second they open up, these places that had uh, done so much with their lockdowns to keep COVID cases low, the second they open up, they're just smacked in the face with more COVID. And which tells to me that people are just gonna catch the virus anyway. Because you, you can't keep people locked down forever. You're gonna have to open up at some point, and if the moment you do that, you're gonna get, you're gonna catch a, a face full of COVID, it, it'll be best to begin that process now. Because remember, flatten the curve wasn't about zero cases. It was about making sure that the health apparatus didn't get overwhelmed. We are at a point now where our health apparatus is not as under capacity, really. They're under capacity. And that, that shocked me when I saw stories of doctors being laid off. I'm like, what? How? This is COVID. So, with hospitals at less than their usual capacity, and definitely under capacity in New York with so many extra beds and 
medical facilities, makeshift medical facilities were made and the USS Comfort was brought in to help them deal with what was going to be this massive boom in cases and hospitalizations and deaths. New York, despite making up a disproportionate amount of the COVID deaths in the country, they haven't gone through that that massive spike that they were expecting. And now we're at a point where we have treatments, we have therapeutics. Uh, the president here in America, he, President Trump, he got COVID uh, right before, no, it was right after the first debate, or at least that's when he tested positive for it, right after the first debate. Uh, he went to the hospital, he was sick for a couple of days, and now he's testing negative. He wants the drugs that he was given uh, available for the public. And if they are, you know, made available to the public, COVID effectively becomes a non-issue. Because when you think about who he is, and, and I don't mean like, oh, he's the president. I mean, he's overweight and he's in his 70s. He is the prime demographic to die to this virus. But if we have treatments and medications that can keep him alive, and then you make that available to the wider public, especially people who are already more likely to survive the virus anyway, COVID, at this point, is nearing the edge of being a non-issue. And in that sense, I agree with the president when he says that we're rounding the corner. I mean, if we can keep him alive and then you make those treatments and drugs available for the wider public damn near everyone's gonna live especially with the already pretty low thank goodness mortality rate that the virus has and yeah I I think the lockdowns need to end I think we have gotten to a point where it is gonna be more feasible to do that without uh, a significant spike in deaths, at least here in America anyway. I, I, I can't speak to the health apparatus of any other country, really, but I would imagine that with his, uh, Trump's forceful, how should I put it, his wartime production powers and his uh, forcing of manufacture of drugs in the United States, he currently has Puerto Rico, and Kodak Pharmaceuticals on deck for this. Um, if he's forcing the manufacture of drugs here in America, uh, again, in particular, the drugs that helped him survive the virus, and they start being mass-produced, whether that's federal subsidized or otherwise, I can imagine other countries being able to get access to that. And then for them, COVID would also gradually become a non-issue. I don't think we need to adjust to this new normal. I think we just need to survive, basically. That's it. Survive uh, the night. So there, there goes my thoughts on uh, COVID and the situation that we're in right now. Cancel me if you want to. <laughs> but uh... I say that's a very, very good thing. I say it's a very good thing that we have reached this point. Because, uh, you know, back in the past, you know, when a virus would roll through, you, you just get sick or you don't. Maybe you catch it, maybe you don't. Maybe you die, maybe you don't. Not too much the, the government was going to do. They certainly weren't going to start printing money endlessly to try to stop a virus also goes to show the difference between then and now <clears throat> but uh I think I think we're rounding the corner you know and I greatly look forward to the day that 2020 is over we'll, we'll, we'll just say that and leave that where it is and when we come back uh, we will talk about France and the Middle East. Alright, 
So we were going to talk about France and the Middle East, but and I will get to that in just a moment. But I want to go over uh, this other topic that came up uh, actually right after my preamble, my little opening that I do in the beginning of all my episodes. Uh, I got a notification saying that President Trump had signed a new executive order that would allow him to fire Dr. Fauci. Okay, so, uh, and as I was going through my notes, I saw what I had written for it and remembered that I wanted to talk about it, so here we are. Alright, so, uh, it, it ties back into what I was just talking about, the lockdowns and how I think that they need to end, and in America, it's a bit of a partisan issue. The Democrats are mostly in favor of lockdowns, uh, and the Republicans are openly in more in defiance of them and the if you see the blue versus red state breakdown you'll see it's you'll see the proof is in the pudding all right the red states are mainly opening up and a lot of the blue states are more closed down although they are beginning to open up uh new york and california have opened up and then gone back to lockdowns uh, now I'm in Illinois, so I, I I like to believe that there we're not gonna do the same thing, but I have no guarantees. Uh, but uh, back to the executive order. So Trump, I, I looked into it. Uh, Trump signed an executive order that creates a new class of federal employee called Schedule F. I don't know why it's called that, but it is. Maybe maybe schedule is just the classification system that they use. Who knows? Weird, but that's what it is. Schedule F. Now, those who are or get moved to this classification can effectively be they can effectively be fired at will. So, the media is speculating about how this would basically allow him to fire Dr. Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci who, uh, while he hasn't openly called for another lockdown in the face of a potential second wave, you know, with a cold and flu season coming around, while he hasn't called for a second lockdown, he hasn't ruled one out yet. He seems to be uh, of the belief that what we've done so far with uh, our response to the pandemic will basically be enough to handle a potential second wave, you know, again, I bring you back to under, under capacity hospitals, uh, during a pandemic, so, and that's all I'll say, that was an interesting thing that popped up at quite the interesting and convenient time for me, uh, you know, in the making of the podcast, but back to what I was going to talk about, which is France and the Middle East. Uh, France is in a bit of hot water with Middle Eastern nations, uh, predominantly Jordan and Turkey. Now, how did this all begin? It starts with a story <clears throat> excuse me, that I initially wasn't going to go over, which was the beheading of a teacher in France. I had seen it. I was like, what entire nation is going down in France? Uh, I knew that they had unrest. I know that the yellow vests were still active. No, it's not the yellow vests, obviously. But um, I knew that a lot of the... Uh, what was it? The migrants? Yeah, the migrants in, uh, in Africa, namely the Islamists, were getting active and more violent in the streets and ironically enough the non-violent protesters you know the yellow vests caught, caught the short end of the nightstick so to speak uh, I knew France was in a bit of disarray uh, was not expecting a beheading but was going to not talk about it uh, at least on this episode anyway but it has evolved from a local story to a bit of a 
you know, a geopolitical story, you know, our forte, our cup of tea here on This Week in Geopolitics with Hashan Weed. Um, so, a French teacher by the name of Samuel Patty, uh, who was beheaded outside of the school he worked at in a Parisian suburb. He was beheaded for depicting the Prophet Muhammad while he was teaching a class on free speech. Now, depictions of Muhammad are forbidden, strictly forbidden in Islam. France has a decent population of Islamic migrants living in France, uh, namely due to the fallout from the Syrian civil war and the bouts of open borders policy that the EU had embraced, you know, until the Greeks put up a wall. But um, I'll get I'll cover that in just a moment, because that is actually slightly important to the story. But so teacher gets beheaded, Samuel Patty, uh, for depicting Prophet Muhammad in a class on free speech. Uh, now, the French president Emmanuel Macron has addressed the Islamists directly vowing not to give up cartoons depicting the pro- the prophet Muhammad i believe he said that uh islam is a religion in crisis everywhere now obviously majority islamic countries were not happy with this uh, jordan for example their foreign ministry condemned macron's defense of the depictions uh he can the Foreign Ministry of Jordan condemned the uh, depictions without naming Macron directly, but, you know, you could tell he was talking about Macron. Uh, He did this while justifying the actions of those responsible for the beheading uh, as uh, wanting our future, and that's a quote. Now, he means that in reference to fellow Islamists slash Muslims. Now, the Islamic Action Front, which is a party, a political party in Jordan, called for the boycotting of French goods Kuwait and Qatar already have. Boycotted French goods. Now, the that's how it, this seemingly wild story in France evolved into something rather geopolitical in scale. But leave it to Turkey to take it a step further, because then the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, slams Macron as being anti-Islam and even going as far as to say he needed mental checks. (laughs) It's stories like these that... that really show you why I, I felt the need to make a geopolitics podcast you know out, outside of the reasons I believe I laid out in my first episode you can't make this stuff up people you know I always was a fan of uh, current events but this oh boy this this is too good now uh, France has been involved in the Middle East uh, quite a bit lately, quite a bit. They have been involved in the toppling of Libyan, yeah, 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 Libyan uh, dictator, who, uh, yeah, come on, come on, English, come on, brain, come to me, come to me, uh, Gaddafi, there we go, Gaddafi, all right. So France was involved in the toppling of Gaddafi, they were involved slightly less in the ensuing civil war that happened in Libya. They are at odds with Turkey in the eastern Mediterranean. And I believe that they established a presence in Lebanon following the Beirut explosion. That I was not when that explosion happened, I'll be completely honest, I was shocked at the lack of memes, alright, I'll, I'll be honest, I was shocked at the lack of memes, uh, 
but uh, France apparently established a presence in uh, Lebanon afterwards. And it led me to ask the question, why is France involved in all these places that seemingly have nothing to do with France? And in a word, empire. Or I guess more accurately, it would be the remnants of that empire. Because back in the heyday of the French Empire, they actually directly owned Syria and Lebanon. Uh, Algeria was considered a core province of France at the time. You know, I mean, if you look on a map, you can see why. It's directly south of France and gives them their own bit of control over who is and isn't allowed to come into the Mediterranean at least from the west because France uh, France has the ability to control the western Mediterranean and they have the capability of reaching into the eastern Mediterranean especially when they owned bits and pieces of the Levant you know Lebanon and Syria so and they've never really let go I've seen a couple stories a couple videos on how French influence in their former colonies never really went away. Um, predominantly, this is, can be seen in Africa, where President Macron, uh, not too long ago, took a trip to uh, what was it? It was Ghana. It was Ghana. He went. To, he took a trip to Ghana. Now, the Ghana, the Prime Minister or the President, I can't remember which one. But he had laid out that he wanted Ghana to basically be able to take care of itself, like any nation would want to. And, but the more noticeable thing was that France, the French President Macron was there at all. Because again, Ghana seemingly has nothing to do with France. Until you remember Empire. And, you know, we always, we know here on this week in geopolitics that speculation is always the fun part now we've I've mentioned many times that America is going home I am of the firm belief that Peter Zihan is right in many of his assessments and namely the conflicts that are bound to happen once America goes home once the withdrawal is complete and one of those conclusions that he drew is a return to empire. Namely the Europeans, namely the Japanese, namely the Turks. Now, imagine a world where America is isolationist, again, which usually happens after periods of great strength, combined with a Europe that feels it is in decline or in France's case would feel that it is no longer tied down by American influence abroad the same would be true for Turkey I'm pretty sure Turkey would very much appreciate America not being involved in the Middle East what would you see you would see the French start to reassert themselves in their former colonial territories. And I say reassert from the from the understanding that I've established that the French never really left. So really it would be more so, okay, we're back, we're in charge. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Alright? It would be something akin to that that type of reasserting their presence in these regions and they would probably start with Algeria um, I'm just gonna be uh, honest um, pretty sure Algeria has oil as well so there's that for France I, I laid out in my first episode that I believed Turkey would just go on a rampage through the Middle East and there's lots to gain for them you know in material and the non-material aspects of that but it's on the topic of France 
their connections with their former imperial holdings uh, in the event that they are suddenly allowed to enforce their presence wherever they want without American interference, like what happened in the Suez Crisis back in, what was it, the 1950s, they could reassert their empire and rebuild it from scratch, piece by piece. And if they tried to go for the Eastern Med, they would undoubtedly come into conflict with Turkey, who would also be building an Eastern Mediterranean empire. Not necessarily a, a colonial empire, but rather a land empire. And who would win? Who knows? Uh, a new Ottoman Empire would be far richer than the Empire of Old. And would occupy, e even though it would occupy the same position, but the French Empire already ha would already have access to nuclear weapons. So who knows where that goes? But I did believe it was an interesting thing to note that they're currently involved during this pandemic in all of these places that they used to uh, control via empire. And the mess that that is getting them into with Turkey, who also used to control uh, Syria and Lebanon, you know, so overlapping claims. And Maybe in a world where countries are allowed to act on these claims, you could potentially see another war between the French and the Ottomans. Except with modern technology this time. And, uh, you know, it would be fun, you know, to watch for me as an American on the other side of the planet. And another thing, if France and maybe Britain you know, depending on where Britain goes post-Brexit or after a potential Kanzuk. Another thing to look out for is if the Europeans try to assert themselves in Africa, they would potentially come into conflict uh, with China's economic interests. China is looking at Africa as a source of cheap labor for Chinese goods, their finished materials that they depend on for exports. And not to mention the raw materials that Africans have that China would appreciate having access to. So if the Europeans tried to uh, dust off their imperial handbooks, as Peter Zion puts it, and China is pushing into Africa for economic security, you could see a return to colonial warfare in Africa. Because remember, the Europeans started off expanding in Africa for their own economic security, you know, the breadbasket of Egypt, the trading posts of the West Africa, the, the Ivory Coast, you know, which included slavery, let's, let's, uh, we, we can remember that, but it was economic, the British took, uh, the port of Cape Town from the Dutch, which was a major stopping point if you were trying to go around Africa. Uh, the Suez Canal, the British seized control after the Ottomans were too weak to assert control. And la I mentioned 19 trillion, uh, what was it, 18 trillion dollars in trade goes through the Suez today. So, expansion imperially for the sake of economy is very much still a reality just looking at China, but imagine, again, a world in which the military option is no longer off the table for countries that aren't America and Russia. The world lights up, and it lights up in a big way. A very interesting way for me, you know, being, again, on the other side of the planet, but a, a very normal way for the people who live in the old world. Probably probably not something that many would appreciate, especially if they're losing those conflicts, namely the Africans. Um, but would definitely give us here a lot to talk about on this podcast. But, now, that's the speculation. And 
speculation is always the fun part. And when you now that I think about it, the last period of you know overseas colonial empires uh, took place in parallel with the last industrial revolution, and many believe now that we are on the verge of a second industrial revolution, a, a tech revolution, which me personally, I believe that there will be upheavals. While there will be upheavals, I believe it's going to. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be like permanent mass unemployment. Instead, I believe it's going to move people up on the value-added chain. Like how the last Industrial Revolution took people off the farms and into the factories, uh, this Industrial Revolution is probably going to take a lot of people either out of the factories or... Yeah, out of the factories and going to put a lot of them in their homes. Because just like when the last Industrial Revolution happened, people still worked on the farm... To this day, people work on the farm. This industrial revolution, people will still work in the factory, but it's going to be more so people who work out of the factory on value-added things. So, imagine coders. Coders, instead of uh, factory workers, becoming the new middle class. Or maybe coding will be the, the base level, the entry-level job. Can you, can you write, can you code? That's the... That'll be the new requirement. I think that this new industrial revolution is gonna. Uh, how do I put it? How do I put it? It's gonna. It's gonna cause history to repeat itself. Basically, is what I'm gonna say. Because you can only imagine. It, we can only imagine today what this revolution is gonna do for economy, and let alone military. And when you think about it, it was the differential in technology that enabled the European powers to despite their size and despite the massive disposition in population like between them and many of the countries that they were uh, invading to colonize especially in East Asia let alone when you combine all of those countries that they they took over and how many people that they had under colonial occupation versus people in their core territories. It was technology, the differential in technology that allowed them to take over these places that had way more people than them. I mean, think about it. How, how, does, how does tiny England... Sorry, there are kids playing outside. But think about it. How does tiny Britain beat China in a war? Well, you don't. they, they didn't beat them by themselves. They had control over India. And they had the British Navy made of... Who, who had weapons that the Chinese did not. They had massive ships with all these guns and <laughs> cannons. And they just opened fire on the Chinese... And then they land their marines with their boom sticks. And the Chinese are like, wait a second. These, those are supposed to be ours. We invented gunpowder. And the British are like, give me your port. And the Chinese are like, fine. And then all the other European powers come in. Even Germany got in on that fun. And took a port off of China. But that would never have happened without the differential in technology. It, it wouldn't have happened. Because otherwise they would just bash their heads against the superior manpower of the East Asians. Namely China and India, of course. But because they had that tech differential at their disposal, they were able to basically swat away resistance gradually better and better. Because there were wars in India. They didn't, they didn't conquer India in a day. But the, we, can't, we can't ignore the fact that a company conquered a, con a subcontinent. The East India Company. Can't ignore that colonialization happened. And it's important, I think, to understand how it happened. To get a glimpse of what the future may look like. 
if we go through another industrial revolution in this period in time where the countries that did the colonizing back then were forced to decolonize after World War II. They're starting from a clean slate. Maybe China will be along for the ride this time, and you'll see Chinese colonies. But, um, you know, I very much see Peter Zion being right. Especially when you factor in, because he doesn't specifically factor it in himself, you know, English, he doesn't specifically factor it in himself, this new industrial revolution but rather looks at the differential that already exists. But you can imagine the British showing up, showing up in South Africa with railgun rifles and being like, this is ours now. And what would you do against that? You can't hide. They're gonna shoot shoot through your wall from a hundred miles away. But speculation aside, uh, the world is in a weird place right now, in a very weird place right now. Pandemic, lockdowns, uh, combined with geopolitical forces that were already in motion, that are coming to fruition now, uh, such as America's withdrawal, China's rise and assertion of influence, uh, France maintaining its influence in its former colonies and the British desire to be independent from Europe. We're, we're in a, we're a bit of a weird place that's probably going to transition to something normal soon enough, you know. However long that takes, uh, we don't really know. I can't tell you. I really can't even give you an estimate. I can just tell you I would appreciate an isolationist America, but, you know, my personal preferences. Uh, aside that uh, that's my opinion on where I think we're headed you know a new age of colonialization new industrial revolution tensions that are actually allowed to boil over into conflict rather than suppressed by a sole superpower uh yeah. Yeah, I think it's going to be a more violent world, definitely. Way more violent. But, yeah. I guess that's technically the norm, historically speaking. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe Mongolia will rise again. That'll be fun. But, uh, uh I'll come back in just a moment and we'll wrap things up. All right. That, well, that's a little different from what we've been covering these uh, past couple weeks, but I guess last week has been quite different. Well, maybe it wasn't, and I just just now caught on to some of these things that were happening. You know, never leave out my blind spots. I can only cover so much, but I think. I think we went over quite a bit, you know, for a tiny little podcast that I just started, what, four weeks ago? This is week five. Proud of the progress we've made. Definitely more comfortable on recording mm-hmm. to the point to the point where I'm cracking jokes. I'm cracking jokes, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, the uh, this geopolitical unthawing that I mentioned, uh, it continues. Just like I said, it happened fastest in the Middle East, and now the thawing, the unthawing rather, has spread to the regions proximate to the Middle East, and now that increasingly means France. First, it was involving themselves in the Libyan civil war. Then it was confronting Turkey in the middle in the eastern Mediterranean. Now France is in a partial standoff against Islam itself. So, um, there's gonna be that to look out for and see how that develops. 
And all the while, nations the world over are buckling, to say the least, under the social and economic pressures of the lockdowns. And some have no end in sight. New problems are arising in that time that just might put COVID to shame, and some of them, like I've mentioned in this episode, may already have. They already have. But that is all I have for you today. I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And if any and if you've learned anything from these past couple broadcasts, the world is changing, folks. But we are gonna have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till me meet till me <laughs> So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.